The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, before I exult in and explain Daniel 9, I'd like to share briefly uh, a family update. So this is my family's first time at the North Campus since I last preached to you on January 9. And we missed you. We're glad to be back home. My daughter's... My wife over there on the second, third row there. Well, I'm, uh, for those of you who prayed for us while I was away, while we were away, thank you. Thank you. So I'm on a research sabbatical this semester, uh, full-time research and writing, and I haven't had my, my usual teaching load and administrative responsibilities, and we just spent the last three months in Greenville, South Carolina. I feel a little guilty because I heard that your winter has been windier, colder, less sunny, and we had some nice weather. So, all right. <laughs> Uh, uh, so sorry, not sorry. Um, uh, my primary research goal during the sabbatical is to write a book on predestination for Crossway. And with the Lord's help, I've been able to draft that, and it's in the works. And uh, Lord willing, I'm planning to begin a four-week sermon series here uh, on June 12. So that's coming. I look forward to sharing the fruits of my labor with you then. Now, while we've been away, I've enjoyed listening to every sermon Uh, including all the sermons on Daniel. And this morning, we're continuing our series on the book of Daniel. And our next text is Daniel 9, 1 through 19. So let's pray and then dive right in. Father, would you please convict us of our sins and enlighten our minds and capture our hearts as we study Daniel's prayer? Please teach us how we, as a group, should confess our sins. Amen. In our sermon text, Daniel 9, 1 through 19, Daniel confesses sin on behalf of God's people. So I'd like to preach to you on this subject. How should God's people, as a group, confess sin? And I plan to address this in three parts. Part one is really the the main part. How does Daniel model a way for God's people as a group to confess sin? And then we're going to apply that in part two. Should we corporately repent for sins that people committed in past generations? And then finally, why does it matter that we specify how God's people should and should not repent? So let's start with this first part. How does Daniel model a way for God's people as a group to confess sin. And Daniel's prayer models at least five ways that we should confess our sins as a group when we've sinned against God. Here's the first. Pray in response to the Word of God. Pray in response to the Word of God. So Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, is the setting for the prayer. So Surely you remember this history from studying through Daniel thus far. In 605 B.C., the Babylonians or the Chaldeans destroyed Jerusalem and deported many Israelites from Jerusalem to Babylon. Daniel was one of those exiles. And those exiles, many of them still alive. Daniel was about 15 at the time. Now he's 70 years later, uh, and he's about 85. He's still in Babylon. And Daniel's prayer, verses 4 to 19, uh, didn't come out of nowhere. It's the result of a Bible study. The catalyst for this prayer is Daniel was studying the Bible. And let me show that to you. So 
uh, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived, look at these words, in the books. He's reading his Bible. I perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, he's doing a Bible study of Jeremiah, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then, after I had my Bible study, after I saw what Jeremiah said, then I prayed. So his studying the word of God was the catalyst for the prayer. And he mentioned specifically 70 years. So we know which passages he was studying. It's, there are only two in Jeremiah that mention 70 years. It's Jeremiah 25 and 29. So let me show those to you. Here's the first one. Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. This whole land of Jerusalem shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon, there it is, 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, then I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. That's the first passage. Here's the second one. Jeremiah 29, 10 to 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a hope and a future. Let's pause right there. Now, this, this passage right here is in Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Jeremiah 29. And there was a little debate at the time among uh, Israel, Israelite leaders. How long is this exile going to be? And some false prophets were saying, it's going to be short. So don't put your roots down. Don't settle in. And Jeremiah is saying, no, that's wrong. It's going to be 70 years. Put your roots down. Settle in. But remember, here's what's going to happen at the end. So he says, then, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. I'll bring you back to Jerusalem. So as a result of Daniel's studying these two passages, Jeremiah 25 and 29, he calculates in Daniel chapter 9 that the Israelites are nearing the end of those 70 years. But he's dismayed. He's dismayed that God may not end what Daniel 9.2 calls the desolations of Jerusalem, that is their exile from Jerusalem, because of Israel's egregious and continual sins against the Lord. So Daniel wisely concludes, now is the time to seek the Lord with all of our heart. And that's what this prayer is. He's praying in line with several other Old Testament passages, which he would have been familiar with, like Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 30, 1 Kings 8. In Daniel 9, he's praying in response to the Word of God. And this is a pattern for us when we corporately repent. Pray in response to the Word of God. My favorite example of this actually is King David. So in 2 Samuel 7, this is part of the Davidic covenant, the Davidic promise. It says, Now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you've spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. I love this. And do as you have spoken. I think the NIV says, Do as you promised. 
That's a pattern for us when we're praying. Put your finger on the very words of God and pray, Lord, do as you promised. That's what Daniel's doing here as he's confessing sin. That's our first way that he models for us how to confess sin as a group. Here's a second way. This is the obvious one. Confess your sins as the people of God. This is the burden of the whole prayer is Daniel confessing sin on behalf of God's people. So I'd like to reread the prayer. It's end of verse 4 to the end of 19. And as I read it, I'm going to point out a couple things. All the ways he specifies that they've sinned and that he uses not the first person personal pronoun, I, me, but uh, singular. He uses a plural. We and us. I'm going to point that out. It's all over the prayer. So first he says, I I pray to the Lord my God and made confession saying, here's the prayer. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you've driven them, because of the treachery that they've committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, a servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He's confirmed his words, which he spoke against us, and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there's not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it's written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he's done, And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that's called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God. Because your city and your people are called by your name. So Daniel is confessing specific sins that the old covenant people of God were guilty of. And that's a model for us corporately 
when we pray that we should together as a group confess our sins against the Lord because we're all sinners who need God's mercy. Now, we're not part of the old covenant people of God. We who are Christ followers today are part of the new covenant people of God. So what, what does a prayer of corporate confession look like for the new covenant people of God? Prayers of confession have been a common feature in Protestant worship meetings, and I'd like to pray the most famous one. It's from Thomas Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer. You might recognize it. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there's no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore thou those who are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. That's a fitting way to confess sins to the people of God, isn't it? So that's the second way is confess your sins to the people of God. That's why Daniel models how we should do that. Here's a third way. As you're doing that, plead for God's mercy. Plead for God's mercy. We get mercy from God when he doesn't punish us as we deserve. Instead of getting God's justice, that's what we deserve, we get God's undeserved kindness. That's mercy. And when God's people have sinned, we don't plead for justice. We plead for mercy. Notice when Daniel says in verse 3, he's seeking the Lord by prayer and pleas for mercy. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy. In verse 17, pleas for mercy. And in verse 18, because of your great mercy, he's pleading for mercy. And what would it look like for God to mercifully answer this prayer? It would be for God to mercifully bring Israelites back to Jerusalem from Babylon. That would be God's undeserved kindness. Here's a fourth way that Daniel models how we as God's people, as a group, should confess sin. Praise God for his excellencies. It's all throughout the prayer. I'll I'll point out a few highlights here. Uh, As we confess our sins, we should praise God for his excellencies. So like Daniel, verse 4, we should praise God for his greatness and awesomeness. He repeatedly calls God Lord, translates Adonai, because God is the supreme king. And like Daniel, we should praise God for his covenant loyalty and love. Uh, In verse 4, you see uh, Lord in all capital letters. That translates the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's God's covenant name. So Daniel addresses God as Lord in all caps because God keeps his covenant with his people. He always keeps his word. God is faithful. Praise God for that as you pray. And like Daniel, verses 7 and 14 and 16, we should praise God for his righteousness. Everything that God is and does is right. Praise God for his righteousness. 
And like Daniel, verses 9 and 18, we should praise God for his mercy and forgiveness. Praise God that he is compassionate and forgiving. And it's good to remind ourselves of that as we're praying, as we're confessing. We should exult in who God is, exult in what he's already done for us. And finally, ask the Lord to act for his own sake. God does what he does for his own glory. Can you believe that? God does what he does for his own glory. So as you're praying, ask God to be merciful to God's people for the sake of God, for the sake of God's reputation. The end of the prayer reads like this. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day, we've sinned, we've done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city of Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and here's what's happened because of our sins. Your people have become a byword among all who are around us. We're reflecting on you, God. This is, this is hurting your reputation. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. He, he refers to Jerusalem as the city that's called by your name. Our reputation and your reputation are bound together. We're, we're dragging you down, so please forgive us, restore us for the sake of your name. And he ends the prayer. Act, delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So Daniel's prayer models at least five ways that God's people as a group should confess sin. Pray in response to the word of God. Confess your sins as the people of God. Plead for God's mercy. Praise God for his excellencies. And ask the Lord to act for his own sake. Now let's transition here to part two. Should we corporately repent for sins that people committed in past generations? And specifically as a test case, I'm going to apply this to a controversial topic. Should white people today repent for the ethnic partiality that white people committed in past generations? Now, anytime you have a group of sinful humans, there will be divisions, even if every human has the same skin color. Uh, sinful people sinfully divide people. It's been that way since the very beginning. They create a sinful us versus them system. And this happens on school playgrounds among third graders. And it has happened over and over in human history between ethnic groups all over the world. Here's how my mentor, D.A. Carson, explained it 20 years ago in 2002. He said, the, 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 excuse me, the phenomenon of racism is disturbingly rampant, quite apart from the black and white variety engendered in the West by the tragic history of slavery. Racism surfaces all over the world. Most Chinese parents, for example, would not want their daughter to marry a European-American lad. Most Japanese think that Koreans are a step down. The list is endless. Add the tribal conflicts in Africa, of which the genocide in Rwanda is merely the most notorious recent example, the Hutus and Tutsis. Add the myth of Aryan supremacy that demanded not only, not only Lebensraum precipitating World War II, but issued in the Holocaust. 
Add the slaughter of a million and a half Armenians at the beginning of the 20th century. Add the Russian slaughter of the Ukrainians. Again, this is 20 years ago. And widespread non-Russian Slavic distrust of Russians. Add the horrors of apartheid. Now abolished in law, but a long way from being totally overcome. Add the treatment of aboriginals by Australian Caucasians. Add the treatment of Indians in the Americas, North, Central, and South, by Canadians, Americans, Brazilians, and Hispanic countries. The list is endless. I mean, if you visit Israel today, you can sense the tension between Jews and Arabs. Carson's right. The list goes on and on. It's, it's ethnic conflict has marked sinful humans from the beginning. It's not new. It's not just a black-white American issue. It's a sin issue that sinful humans must address at all times in all cultures because God hates the sin of ethnic partiality, and we hate it too. In light of prominent views in our secular culture today, and as well as among some Christians, some of us who have a lighter shade of skin color may feel a false guilt about that. And by feeling false guilt, I mean wrongly feeling guilt and shame. For example, did you steal a donut this morning from somebody? If you didn't, you shouldn't feel shame for stealing a donut this morning. That would be false guilt. You should, there's a lot to, we should feel guilty about. You probably aren't feeling guilty about something you should, but uh, there's also another error. You can, you can fall off the horse a couple of different ways. Another error is to feel guilt that you shouldn't. Now, some well-intentioned Christians are arguing that if you are a white person, then you are guilty to some degree for the sins that white people committed in past generations. So that means that if you're white, you may think that the American slave trade was wicked. You may think that the segregation of Jim Crow policies was unjust. You may not personally have prejudices against black people. You may not personally discriminate against black people. You may not personally think that you're superior in any way to black people. Yet because you have white skin, you're complicit to some degree in racism, and therefore you must repent. In other words, all white people are corporately guilty for their ancestors' ethnic partiality and should repent corporately for those sins. And one of the, you're thinking, why are we talking about this? One of the primary arguments for this view is that several passages in the Bible portray the sin and guilt of ancestors together with corporate repentance for those sins, even if an individual may be personally innocent of those particular sins. Catch that? So one of those passages is our sermon text, Daniel 9, 1 to 19. So here's what some people will argue that Daniel 9 is teaching. Daniel is personally innocent of these sins that his ancestors committed. Yet Daniel includes himself as he corporately confesses the sins of God's people. So some people conclude Daniel's an example for white Christians today in this respect. An individual white Christian today may be personally innocent of ethnic partiality, yet such a white Christian should include himself or herself while corporately confessing the sin of ethnic partiality that white people committed in past generations. You follow me? And so that's the argument. What do we make of that argument? Well, I want to start with an important qualification. I chose this topic as a test case because some of you have shared with me over the past several years that you've wondered, should I, should I repent of my, my whiteness? Should I repent 
of my white skin? And should we who have white skin corporately repent because of our white skin? And I think it would serve our church to be clear about this controversial topic and show how God's word applies to every square inch of our lives. So as we address this topic, I want to make it clear. It's important to remember that ethnic partiality is a sin against God. And sadly, some people still sin this way today. Ethnic partiality is wicked. Ethnic partiality is a sin for which Jesus died. So please do not construe anything I'm saying to support or downplay ethnic partiality. On this topic of ethnicity, you're welcome to read an article I wrote in 2020 titled, What the Bible Teaches About Ethnic Harmony. So now, regarding this test case, the resource that most helped me is an, an article online that I'd commend to you. It's by Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer. That's S-H-E-N-V-I and Sawyer, titled, Do Whites Need Corporate Repentance for Historical Racial Sins? And in what follows, I'm going to be repackaging some of what they argue in my own words. I commend it to you. So Shenvey and Sawyer first explain that there are three main arguments for white corporate guilt and repentance. So I'll summarize those here. I've already shared the first one, and that's that several passages in the Bible, including Daniel 9, portray ancestral sin and guilt together with corporate repentance for those sins, and this is the key, even if an individual may be personally innocent of those particular sins. So again, Daniel is personally innocent of these sins, his ancestors committed, yet he includes himself as he corporately confesses. And that uh, the argument goes that's a, a model for how white people today should repent corporately of their sins that they may not have individually, personally committed. Here's a second argument. The past sins of white people, slavery, lynching, Jim Crow, etc., are imputed to white people today. So this is the same idea of corporate solidarity we affirm regarding Adam's sin and Christ's righteousness. So Adam's sin, his original sin, is imputed to all humans. Christ's righteousness is imputed to all believers. And all humans are guilty because of Adam's sin, sin that we didn't personally actually commit. Believers are righteous because of Christ's life and death, even though we're not personally perfectly righteous. And then the argument goes, that is a model for how white people today are guilty for the ethnic partiality of white people in the past, even if they're not personally guilty of it today. That's a second argument. And third, white people today have unearned advantages. The term for that is white privilege from historic injustices, which make them complicit in those injustices. So even if white people are not personally guilty of ethnic partiality today, their unearned advantages make them complicit in past sin. So those are the three best arguments I know of to argue for this view of white corporate guilt and repentance. My thesis is that the answer to the questions I pose is no. No, we should not corporately repent for the sins that people committed in past generations. Specifically, no, white people today should not repent for the ethnic partiality that white people committed in past generations. Why? Six reasons, at least. So here they are. Number one, Daniel repented of his own sins in his prayer. So some argue that Daniel was innocent of any of the sins he mentions in his prayer. And they argue that he speaks in the first person plural, we, us, because he identified with the sinful Israelites. Well, I stopped reading in verse 19. 
Look at the next sentence if you have your, your Bible open. Look at verse 20. Daniel says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. So, what does that phrase, confessing my sin, mean? It means that in his prayer, Daniel was confessing his personal sins as an individual. He's not an innocent, sinless man who's merely identifying with sinful Israelites. He's a sinful Israelite too, and he includes himself in the prayer. Here's a second reason. Daniel corporately repented of his people's ongoing sins. The sins that Daniel corporately repents of in this prayer were happening at the time he was praying. They weren't sins exclusive to his ancestors in past generations. Those sins were ongoing up to the moment he was praying. Third reason, Daniel responded to specific promises God made to his old covenant people. That's why he confessed the sins of God's old covenant people. He prayed as a leader who represented God's old covenant people. You have Daniel the prophet praying on behalf of God's old covenant people. Now, God's old covenant people is an actual covenant people. It's not an arbitrary group of people. But referring to white people today is an arbitrary group of people. White people are not a covenant people. That's like referring to all people who are six feet tall or all people who speak French or all people who have a dimple when they smile. It's, it's arbitrary. Those arbitrary groups of people are not a covenant people. The term white people, by the way, refers to race, but the category of race is not a Bible category. It's a social construct. And you may, may have noticed that I've been referring to ethnic partiality and ethnicity rather than racism and race. Here's why. Race is primarily biological or physical. Ethnicity is primarily cultural. So race focuses on superficial characteristics like skin color and hair texture. Ethnicity includes physical characteristics, but it focuses on cultural characteristics like language and geopolitics. That's why our black brother, Vodi Bakum, says this, race is arbitrary. Racial classifications are not real classifications. There's but one race. There's virtually no genetic difference between a black man and a white man. We have the same original parents. We are of multiple ethnicities, but one race. The racial distinctions between us are arbitrary distinctions based on certain features we have, but not on real differences. That's good. So when we use the term race according to contemporary usage, I think we're undermining the Bible's teaching that we all share one race, the human race. We humans are all related. We share the same bloodline. We all have the same common ancestor, Adam. That's what Acts 17 verse 26 says. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So if white people aren't a covenant people. Is there a covenant people today? Yeah, there's a new covenant people. And the name for that is the church. The church is the new covenant people of God. And it consists of Jews and Gentiles, people from all ethnicities, not just one. And the church as a group, all ethnicities together, should corporately repent for our sins against God. 
But there's no biblical basis for saying we should restrict corporate repentance only to a subgroup like white Christians. So when God's new covenant people corporately repent, we all repent together as a group. As Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer explain, in the context of corporate confession, there is only corresponding guilt and accountability of sin for any specific individual to the extent that the specific individual actually sinned. So all humans are guilty in Adam because Adam is the covenant head of the human race. All, all believers are righteous because of Christ's life and death, because Christ is the covenant head of the new humanity of believers. But white people or redheads or Chinese speakers or whatever, they don't have their own covenant head. So that's the third reason. Number four, the Bible explicitly says that guilt does not transfer from parent to child. Listen to two scripture passages. Deuteronomy 24, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Ezekiel 18, the son shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So the Bible explicitly says that guilt does not transfer from parent to child. So let's argue here from the greater to the lesser. Uh, Here's how an argument from the greater to the lesser works. If I could pick up this pulpit, then I could pick up my handkerchief, right? Greater to the lesser. If guilt does not transfer from parent to son, from father to son, how much more does guilt not transfer from unspecified historical person hundreds of years ago to someone today? See that argument from the greater to the lesser? So you might be thinking, what about that passage that says the Lord visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation? So that's, that's Numbers 14 and Exodus 20. That, that's not saying that God holds children accountable for their father's sins. It's merely saying that children often repeat the sins of their fathers. So when parents are guilty of anger or drunkenness, it's more likely that their children will repeat those sins. Even when that's the case, God still holds the children accountable for their own sins. Here's reason five. It's impossible to repent for sins that someone else committed. So let me define repentance. To repent of a sin means to turn away from a sin and turn to God. It's a change of mind that results in a change of life. It's impossible to do that for a sin that you did not commit. You can't turn away from a sin that you haven't committed and that you already despise. You can repent of your own ethnic partiality, but it's impossible to do that for your ancestors. The sins of your ancestors are not imputed to you. 
you must repent of your own sins. And God instructs us how to do this. We confess our sins first and foremost to God because whenever we sin, we sin most fundamentally against God's white-hot holiness. That's, he's the most offended party every time we sin. So we confess our sins to God, and then, if necessary, to any fellow humans we've sinned against. We don't need to do this repeatedly, over and over and over, if we've already asked God to forgive us and asked others to forgive us, unless we're repeating the sin. So the way this works is we ask for forgiveness, we receive forgiveness, and we move on. That's how God mercifully designed repentance and forgiveness. It's beautiful. But that's not how it works for white people today who corporately repent for the sins of their white ancestors. That's a never-ending process of doing penance and feeling perpetually guilty because it's impossible. It's impossible to actually repent of a sin you didn't commit. So, friends, if you are feeling guilty today because of actual ethnic partiality you committed, you should feel that guilt, and you should repent of that. Repent of that sin against God. Repent of that sin against your fellow image bearer. But we must distinguish between your sins today and the sins of your ancestors hundreds of years ago. They're different. That's a different. Further, suppose that you are a white person today and that you have sinned by having prejudice in your heart against a fellow image bearer solely because they look different than you do. And suppose that you have an ancestor who lived 200 years ago who was guilty of much more severe ethnic partiality, let's say kidnapping black people from Africa and enslaving them as personal property. Both you and your white ancestor are guilty of ethnic partiality and should repent. But we shouldn't treat those sins as identical. They're similar in quality, but different in severity. They're similar in quality, different in severity. Here's an example. There's a difference between speaking to someone in anger and physically murdering them. I don't know about you, but I'm really grateful that when someone speaks to me in anger, I'm still alive. Uh, the severity is a little different. That doesn't mean that the sins, like, like one doesn't matter and one does. All sins are heinous, and they offend God's white-hot holiness, and they're, they're horrible. But they have different degrees of consequences, different degrees of severity. If you want to track this down, there's an article that Kevin DeYoung wrote recently called, Is Every Sin the Same in God's Eyes? It's excellent. So I, I'm not trying to, to minimize any sins here. All sin is wicked, but not all sins are identical. Not all sins are equally severe, and some are worse than others. And we should repent of sins. Here's the main point. We should repent of sins that we actually committed, not of sins that other people committed in centuries past. Here's a sixth and final reason that we should not corporately repent for the sins that people committed in past generations. Privilege does not make a person guilty. So white privilege is a relatively recent term that refers to a set of unearned advantages that whites experience relative to non-whites by virtue of their skin color. Here's what Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer argue. See if you can follow this. Jesus was a man living in a highly patriarchal context where he experienced many unearned advantages due, his, due to his gender. He, he's male. Yet Jesus did not sin. He was in no sense complicit in sin, 
He did not attempt to directly dismantle the systems and structures that provided him with male privilege. Therefore, the experience of privilege, even a privilege which, which results from injustice, cannot entail guilt or the need for repentance. Likewise, if we argue that Ezra, Daniel, Nehemiah were actually guilty of sin because of their corporate membership in Israel, would we contend that Jesus was actually guilty of sin merely because of his corporate membership in Israel? So follow this logic. Jesus was an Israelite. So if you're going to argue that Daniel was sinful, not because he actually committed a sin, but because he was identified with fellow Israelites, if you're going to argue that way, then that would mean that Jesus was sinful because he was identified with fellow Israelites. Perish the thought that Jesus was sinful. So these are six arguments that show, I, I think, that we should not corporately repent for sins that people committed in past generations. And just on that last one on privilege, that privilege doesn't automatically make you guilty. You should not feel guilty because you enjoy privileges that others don't. Here's an example. Four daughters, I have four daughters sitting over there, and they enjoy many unearned privileges that other children don't. They have a mom and a dad who love each other and are faithful to each other and love them. That gives them a massive advantage in life. Should I feel guilty about that? No. That's a blessing from the Lord. We thank God for blessings. We don't feel false guilt about them. So, again, those are six reasons we should not corporately repent for sins that people committed in past generations. And someone here might be thinking, you know, it feels like you're splitting theological hairs and missing the point. And worse, you're excusing current day racism. Why, why, why did you go to such length here? So I'd like to, uh, at the very end here, ask one last question. Why does it matter that we specify how God's people should and should not corporately repent? Why have I been so precise in explaining what it does mean and doesn't mean? Three reasons, at least. First, bad theology hurts people. So it is important to distinguish between repenting, repudiating, and lamenting. Theologian J.I. Packer often said this, bad theology hurts people. Theology matters. Teaching what does not accord with reality is harmful, not helpful. And if we feel a false guilt that we think we must repent of, what do we do with that? If you feel a false guilt merely because your skin color is a certain shade, what do you do with that? How do you repent of that? That is false guilt. That will weigh on you, and you won't be able to get rid of it apart from renouncing it as false guilt. Good theology helps us, and in this case, it's important to distinguish between repenting, repudiating, and lamenting. Repent means to turn away from sin and to God. Repudiate means to refuse to accept or be associated with. Lament means to mourn, to express deep grief about. So we should repent of our own sins, but not the sins of others. We should repudiate our own sins and the sins of others, and should, we should re lament our own sins and the sins of others. So if we're guilty of ethnic partiality of any kind, we should repent of that. But what about the horrific ethnic partiality that people committed in past generations? We can't repent of that. 
but we can repudiate it and we can lament it. Getting those categories right is important because bad theology hurts people. In a similar way, if we've not supported abortion in any way, I don't think it's right for us to repent of the widespread sin of abortion in our state and nation and world. What we do, though, is we repudiate it, we lament it, we ask God to be merciful, but we as God's people don't repent of abortion as if we are guilty of it. That's the first reason that it matters. Here's a second reason. Wrong thinking about corporate repentance creates ethnic disharmony. So Ephesians 4 says that we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Wrong thinking about corporate repentance doesn't help us do that. It, it creates not ethnic harmony. It creates ethnic disharmony. And notice uh, that Paul says, be eager to maintain, maintain, not create. We don't create this unity. Christ already created it. We maintain it. We preserve it. And you can read about this in Ephesians 2 and 3. And the Jew-Gentile tension that Paul writes about there was far deeper, far more divisive in the first century than our current day black-white tension. And Christ broke down the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. He broke it down. He created one new man in place of the two, so making peace and reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's what Jesus did. Our identity in Christ is more significant than every other self-defining characteristic. We are Christ followers. We are Christians. We belong to Christ. That's what brings us together. And the church must maintain the ethnic harmony that Christ already created. Wrong thinking about corporate repentance does not help us do that. And finally, the church must corporately repent of our own actual sins. We have enough actual sins to repent of without adding false guilt to our burden. You should not feel guilty because of the color of your skin. If you feel guilty because of the color of your skin, that is false guilt. There's enough for you to feel guilty about without adding false guilt on top of actual guilt. Now, please don't conclude from the sermon that you have no reasons to feel guilty. Don't respond with a self-righteous attitude. All of us, all humans are sinners. As sinners, we seek glory for ourselves. We put ourselves in the place of God. We trust our own senses, our own experience, our own reasoning. We think we know better than God does. And we're glory thieves. We steal glory that belongs to God. All of us do that. We're all sinners, so we all need to repent regularly. That's what we are by definition, Christians. We're repenting sinners. That's what we do. We need God's mercy, his forgiveness, his undeserved kindness. So thank God that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for sinners like us, and that God will save us if we turn from our sins and trust Jesus. We need that gospel every single day, and that's why we confess our sins together. So now, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper, it would be fitting for us to conclude the sermon by praying together. This church is a group of God's people who have covenanted together to follow King Jesus. So I'll lead us 
as we as a group confess our sins and then celebrate the Lord's Supper. Father, we approach you in the name of Jesus the Messiah. And we praise you that you are great and awesome. There's no one like you, God. You are the supreme creator, the supreme king. And we praise you for your covenant loyalty and love. You are faithful. You always keep your word. We praise you for your righteousness. Everything you do, everything you are, is right. And we praise you for your mercy and forgiveness. Lord, you said in 1 John 1, 9, you said that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we confess. Forgive us, Lord, for failing to do what you've commanded us to do. Forgive us for doing what you've commanded us not to do. Forgive us for not doing justice and loving kindness and walking humbly with you. Forgive us for not loving you with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. And forgive us for not loving our neighbor as ourselves. Forgive us for not doing good to everyone as we have opportunity. Forgive us for not setting our minds on things that are above. Forgive us for not walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've called us. Forgive us for not welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us. Forgive us for not bridling our tongues. Forgive us for not visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. Forgive us for not keeping ourselves unstained from the world. Forgive us for our sinful anger, our sinful anxiety, bitterness, covetousness, which is idolatry, impatience, joylessness, judgmentalism, laziness, lust, pride, selfishness, sinful speech, worldliness. We plead for your mercy, O God. Our sins, they are many. But your mercy's more. Please be merciful to us for your own sake, for your reputation among the peoples of the earth, and for your reputation among the angels. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.